designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. A special thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. I'm flipping through my pink slips, and he says, Bo, hey, Tom, how you doing? Fine, he says. Guess what I did this weekend? I said, I don't know. What did you do this weekend? He said, I did some genealogical research. I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he says, it turns out that your family used to own my family. And to that, I said, how about that? And waited for the noise in my head to, to right. clear, went back to my office and just stared at my desk for a while. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Hey, hey. So a few things have happened since the last episode was released. One was I was featured in Oprah's Future Rising project. Future Rising was done in partnership with Lexus and is a series that's running across Hertz magazines to celebrate the profound impact of Black culture on American life and to spotlight 50 dynamic voices of our time. I was so excited and being featured definitely had me feeling like, Mama, I made it. And then it was even better to be featured alongside Kia Witherspoon, who you may remember from episode 14. And our feature is located under the Future is Joyful section. So I'll make sure to put some links to it in the show notes so you can take a look. And also a special thanks to Brent Legs, who's the executive director of the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund at the National Trust for Historic Preservation for introducing me to the people at Hearst. It's been fantastic. You may remember Brent from episode four of the podcast, where he joined me and Carl Elefante for Quinn Evans's Uh, queries and theories on race and preservation. So that's the first thing. Oh my gosh, I made Oprah. The second thing 
is that I found out that all of the conference abstracts that I was involved with this year were selected. So this fall, I'll be co-presenting a session at the National Trust for Historic Preservation, as well as the National Organization of Minority Architects Conference and the Greenbuild Conference. So it's going to be another exciting conference season, and I'm excited to be able to keep contributing to the fields of architecture, preservation, and sustainability. Uh, one other thing, this week I'll be headed to Chicago for the 2022 AIA convention. So please say hi if you'll be attending and you see me there. All right, so those are the announcements onto the content. This week I wanted to highlight some drama that's been unfolding over the past few months that really gets at the importance of using the built environment to tell the full history of the U.S. and how who is at the table makes a difference. And granted, it's not often that there's somewhat salacious drama happening at one of the homes of the country's founding fathers, but the drama that's been unfolding at Montpelier in Virginia has been wild. Like, grab your popcorn wild. I'll include links to the show notes to some of the articles and statements that have been going on for those of you who want to get fully into the tea. So Montpelier was the home to James Madison and has been a case study for preservation practice for years from removing the DuPont family additions on the building to the various work that the foundation's been doing with the descendants of the enslaved. And their website says that Montpelier is a memorial to James Madison and the enslaved community, a museum of American history, and a center for constitutional education that engages the public with the enduring legacy of Madison's most powerful idea, government by the people. And so the drama that's been unfolding is that the Montpelier Foundation promised structural parity in June 2021 and received much national acclaim for this. And so this agreement was promised to give the descendants equal authority on the foundation's board, making them co-equals in sharing governing power and responsibility for the very site that enslaved their ancestors. And this agreement was held up as a model for other historic sites of enslavement as a way to grant structural parity. Well, uh, in March of 2022, so March of this year, uh, the foundation changed their minds on pursuing structural parity and fired lots of staff who called them out. The firing of the staff, the lack of movement on achieving structural parity led to a lot of negative attention, a lot of think pieces, a lot of pushback. And that resulted in the Montpelier Foundation's board of directors changing course again and then choosing to make good on the structural parity promise. And in May, they voted to welcome 11 new members, which were drawn from a list of 20 esteemed nominees that were advanced by the Montpelier Descendants Committee. The vote of the foundation finally brought parity in the governance of President James Madison's estate so that the descendants of the hundreds of persons enslaved by the father of the Constitution and on those nearby plantations will now share power on Montpelier's board. And so the whole situation has been contentious, and I'm sure there are Lots of details that the public won't know about because of just the nature of board work. But it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. But the fact that the Montpelier Foundation actually now does have real parity with the descendants of the state is something that both gives me hope for the future and also infuriates me that the Descendants Committee had to get national attention on this issue for the foundation to take corrective action. And it just reminds me that a lot of the resistance to equity is about power. And the saying goes, when all you've known is privilege, equality feels like oppression. 
And so it's been fascinating to see the various articles, think pieces, call outs and call ins on social media and the conversation that's been happening around the actions and consequences of people in power. And so power, searches for truth and potential progress have been playing out in real time over the past couple of months, particularly at this site. And it's been really interesting to see. As a preservationist, it's been interesting to see because for so long there's been an erasure of the existence or even contributions of African-Americans to various historic sites. And over the years, Montpelier and many other plantations have gotten better at talking about enslaved people and the horrors of slavery at the site, even though there's still been plenty of pushback from people who don't want to hear that story. But telling the truth about the contradiction of how the founding fathers were demanding liberty while owning slaves it just is what is. And so seeing this play out and seeing that structural parity was on the table, then off the table, then back on again, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster there. So I'm glad that the foundation has gotten to the point where now there is structural parity. Hopefully it remains and they're able to continue making progress at that site, telling the complicated history that is the United States. History is just often so much messier than we think. And I think the more that we stop romanticizing historical figures and we can start having more real conversations about actions and consequences, then the faster we can acknowledge what is and just make positive change faster. So all that said, in keeping in the vein of Virginia founding fathers, this week I wanted to spotlight Minokin in Warsaw, Virginia. And Minokin was the home of Francis Lightfoot Lee. He was one of the Virginia signers of the Declaration of Independence. And he lived there with his wife, Rebecca, and the various people that they enslaved. Uh, the property was a gift from the Taylor family to the newlyweds. It's a national historic landmark, and like our country, it's built on the contradictions of slavery. It's reportedly one of the best documented 18th century houses in the United States. It was heavily documented by the WPA, so there's plenty of historic American building survey drawings of the interior and the exterior of the building. It's really spectacular. Oh, and a side note, for those of you in the D.C. area who are familiar with the Octagon House on New York Avenue, the historic building that's in front of the AIA National Headquarters, the original owner of the Octagon House was Rebecca Taylor's brother. And so the Octagon House and Minokin share many architectural similarities. And I should mention that uh, Minokin is currently a ruin, so only about one quarter of the structure is left standing. And there's a new project that's happening down there called the Glass House, where the intent is to reconstruct the missing volume of the house in glass. So Rebecca and Francis didn't have any kids, but the property stayed in the Taylor family for a number of years. So this week's episode features a conversation from the summer of 2020 between me and Bo Taylor. We were both invited down to Minokin by the Minokin Foundation and interviewed by Michael Beller as part of the foundation's In the Glass with Minokin series. And the series sought to bring together individuals for thought-provoking conversations about their lived experiences and shared connections to Minokin's past, present, and future. And I had worked on Minokin at my previous company, Encore Sustainable Design, where I worked on the Historic Structures Report. And at the time of the conversation, Bo Taylor was the current Minokin board president. And so Bo and I met for the first time about 15 minutes before the record button was pressed. And what you'll hear is us getting to know each other and share our different perspectives about the site. Me coming from the perspective of someone whose family could have been enslaved on the site, and him coming from the perspective of someone whose family did the enslaving. 
I've edited the combo for clarity and removed some of the random tangents that Bo and I went on as we got to know each other. Since we knew that this was going to be turned into audio content, Bo and I tried to incorporate the questions Michael asked us into our answers. So unfortunately, you won't actually hear Michael's voice during the interview. Bo was, Minokin is definitely an interesting site to visit. It's in the northern neck of Virginia, which is about two hours south of D.C., and it's definitely worth a visit. I'll be sure to put links in the show notes so you can dig into more of the story wherever you want to jump in. And if you're curious what Minokin looks like, head on over to the Changeable Remnants Instagram page so you can see photos of this building and all the various other buildings that have been spotlighted on the podcast. Well, that's all the context you'll need for this week's episode, and I hope you enjoy this 2020 conversation between me and Bo Taylor. So what brought me to Minokin was a job opportunity. My former business partner, Ward Booker, was already working on the project when we started our former company. And so we were hired to do the historic structures report of the whole site. The foundation's been working on the project since the mid-90s. And there were a number of architecture and preservation firms that did reports and studies and a lot of great work on the property. But they were disparate reports that were basically in a binder on the shelf that weren't talking to each other. And there wasn't a working plan or a full historic structures report for it. So what got me down to Minokin was that opportunity to work on the historic structures report and to pull it all together and really have a comprehensive document of this is what's been done on the site and here's what needs to happen next. What inspired me about working on the Minokin project once I got here was the fact that the story was so comprehensive. I was really grateful to the foundation that they were already telling the story of the enslaved along with the story of Francis Lightfoot Lee and all the ecology and all the other stuff that really is here on this site. There's so many layers of history and so many different vantage points that are already being told here. I was really grateful that the foundation was telling that story so I didn't have to be the lone black preservationist coming down here saying, hey, wait a minute, it was a plantation. We needed to tell that story as well. And so the fact that this house exists as a way to tell the story about the past as well as instruct the future of different preservation techniques, different architecture techniques, and different ways to interpret a site found it much more intriguing to be down here. What brought you to Minokin? So my father in the 90s, because he's from this area, my family's from this area, got involved and made some financial contributions and was excited about it, but it was in the background for me. And then the real kicker for me was there's a, a guy named Tom Duckenfeld who's on the board and he and I worked in the same law firm in Washington. And one Monday morning, this is back in the day before you had a phone message. You had to actually go to a receptionist and get the, the pink slips to, okay. of your messages. And so one Monday morning, I'm out there at the receptionist's desk getting my pink slips, and he's doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm flipping through my pink slips, and he says, Bo, hey, Tom, how you doing? Fine, he says. Guess what I did this weekend? I said, I don't know. What did you do this weekend? He said, I did some genealogical research. I said, mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he says, it turns out that your family used to own my family. And to that, I said, how about that? And waited for the noise in my head to, to right. clear, went back to my office and just stared at my desk for a while. The whole, that whole concept of one family owning another family just came roaring into my head. Years later, Tom's on the board at this point of Minokin and asks if I would consider getting involved. And I absolutely had to. And I'm really grateful to him that he reached out to me. It's been an incredibly enriching experience and I'm, it's a privilege to participate in just exactly some of the things you were talking about, telling right. the full story. Right. This place is such an analogy 
for our country. The building itself, classic Georgian architecture, mm -hmm. and yet there are parts of it that are flawed, that weren't put together so well. Right. And we're struggling with how to address those flaws in the way things got started, yeah. get them back together in a way that's stronger and holds everything together and provides a solid foundation for the wonderful stuff that's gonna come on top. And that's what's going on right now here. And that is, to me, such an analogy for our country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what was the conversation like with other family members after you had that conversation with Tom about, oh yeah, so our family used to own his family. What was that like? That's a great question. It went nowhere. My family's really interesting. There are lots of people who gravitate toward this history about it being a prominent Virginia family. They'll take the upside. You know, wealthy at one mm -hmm. point, right before the Civil War especially, mm -hmm. prosperous, but they don't want to engage around how that happened. Gotcha. I've had conversations where the split is just incredible. We're claiming the good, hmm. we're ignoring the bad. My parents and my sister had a different perspective, but as the family as a whole, that's been my experience. That is just mm -hmm. odd, that split. So and I often get the question of why historic preservation? I'm from Northern Virginia and I spent some weekends in DC because my stepdad was from there and my mom used to work at a homeless shelter. And so I remember being young and uh, seeing vacant buildings with homeless people out in front of them and not understanding why that was the case. Because I was like, well, clearly there are people that need buildings and there are buildings that need people. And so I got into architecture and historic preservation from that desire to reuse the buildings to house more of the people that need to be housed. And so as I've gotten into it and went to UVA, and, and it, that was, it's great to know we both went to UVA, we'll talk more about that. Um, <laughs> and in architecture school, studio, we didn't really focus on existing or historic buildings. And so I, I went back and got my master's in preservation. During that time, I also uh, interned for another preservation architect. But it was really just the understanding that there are buildings that are vacant that need to be reused, don't need to be thrown away. There's perfectly good structures there that could be reused for the people who need them. That's a great segue for me. The whole notion of things don't need to be thrown away, that there's value, yeah. and we just have, need to step back and recognize that. Mm -hmm. um, I do work on behalf of folks with disabilities, and some of the, the critical decisions, the most important Supreme Court decision that I'm aware of regarding people with disabilities is called Olmstead v. LC, and that decision talks about the fact that people with disabilities are so often shunted aside and ignored by society and are written off, notwithstanding how much value they have as human right. beings. And once I had the opportunity because of just travel, being able to spend some time with a friend who was working in a community for folks with disabilities, mm -hmm. it blew me, blew me away. It just totally opened yeah. my mind to the notion that folks have so much incredible potential. And, and so my work right now involves pulling down barriers so people can live yeah. to their full potential and be fully integrated in society, total society. That's awesome. And from a design standpoint, the stories that I've heard of people in wheelchairs in the 70s that used to go around with sledgehammers breaking down corners to get crosswalks because before there were actually crosswalks that had handicap ramps to get down, mm -hmm. a person in a wheelchair had to have another person physically help them get down the curb. And so the idea of adding a ramp on a curb so someone could actually have the autonomy to travel the city like anyone else, it's fantastic. And so I love the design implications of how people with disabilities navigate the physical space. So that's great that you're working on that. Yeah, wow. it's a metaphor. It's a physical metaphor for bringing people together. Yeah. People who otherwise are shunned off and ignored get a chance right. to be together and yeah. everybody benefits from that. This notion of we're just gonna do this because it's the right thing to do, right. but rather 
it's a total win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody right. benefits from having the opportunity to engage with somebody who's yeah. different than they are. Exactly. There's this really great book called Mismatch where it's talking about the fact that people with different disabilities, it's actually a mismatch between their physical being and the environment that was designed for them. So how do we actually pay attention to that? Because a ramp is great for someone in a wheelchair, but also a mother with a stroller, also someone who's on crutches. And if we design for the extremes, then we actually end up helping everyone. So all of that. Yeah. So for me, historic preservation and sustainability are two sides of the same coin. I think that they are both about the future. The whole reason why we preserve the past is so we can have a conversation and transmit information from the past to the future. And the whole reason why we're even trying to be more environmentally conscious and focus on net zero energy, lowering our carbon emissions, is so that future generations are able to have the opportunity to live the life they want to live without being encumbered with the environmental, I guess, garbage that we were sending forward. Uh, And so it's the idea that we don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. And so for me, preservation and being able to tell the stories of a place and why it's important is something that excites me. And also it's something that I think will help future generations have a better understanding of the context that they're currently in. Because I think one of the frustrations of where we are in this country at this point in time is that there's been this a misremembering or a miseducation of what's actually happened. So by only telling the upside and not telling the full context of the history that happened, there are just different dichotomies that start to take shape and we don't get to the same point because we're not on the same page. Because one group of people is thinking that didn't happen. The other group of people is saying it absolutely did. And so, or it's harder to have that conversation when we're not starting from the same place. And so being able to both preserve the the physical stuff, the environmental impacts and not throw away the bricks and not send the building to the landfill. That has power and sustainability. But so does telling the story of the people that were here and the lives that happened and changed. And even the fact that Francis Lightfoot Lee lived in this house and went to Philadelphia, <laughs> went to Baltimore, signed the Declaration of Independence. That just blows my mind. What do you most want people to come away from having visited this place? It's a good question. The idea that this was a working plantation that survived multiple families and that was inherited and passed through multiple generations and the staying power of the actual built material and the fact that the built material gives us a touchstone to be able to have future conversations about ways that we can better preserve, ways that we can interact, and I guess ways that we can also just learn from what came before. Yeah, that word touchstone to me resonates because what I want out of Monokan is for people to come here and make a personal connection mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. That the past collapses into the present and yeah. that they can experience in some way inside them that what happened here long ago really wasn't that long ago and that they have a tie to right. it from whatever perspective they come to it. Mm-hmm. And that um, tie informs them as they as they leave here, yeah. that they are, they're broadened, not necessarily intellectually, but maybe in some other way from the experience. The way I would say I've experienced that is the immediacy of it. When you see fingerprints in the brick, mm-hmm. when you see the horse hair in the, in the plaster or the, a beam that's still in place or the, the lathing with the nails that are in there and you can just touch all that stuff, and you're touching a spot that somebody 200 plus years ago right. touched, drove that nail in. Mm-hmm. The horse lived 200 years ago or the mm-hmm. enslaved person mm-hmm. or the injunction person who made that brick and you could right. put your fingers right in there where they had their fingers. Yeah. 
it collapses time for me. Yeah. And it makes me curious about who that person was and what their life was like. And it also reinforces that one of your themes is that things are always changing. Mm -hmm. And to develop an appreciation for this person lived and walked here and clearly left their mark. They're gone. I'm looking at this. Right. I may or may not make a mark, but mm -hmm. one day I'll be gone. There's, we're all of a piece. I'm of a piece with those people. Yeah. And to me, that, I really like that, actually. I like yeah. the connection. Yeah. Now let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and how to find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in years to come. You can register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's bqe.com masterclass. And now let's get back to the show. So I remember the first time I started driving down the drive um, turning off the road to come down the drive and just feeling, I don't know, it almost felt like some sort of an ancestral connection because it was a, I'm driving on this plantation and at the time it was like 2012 and I was like imagining what it would have been 150 years ago when enslaved people were actually working the land and kind of feeling that slight uncomfort and the idea of, okay, I'm in the fields in Virginia and I'm a black woman and there's that moment of fear and the moment of I don't know anyone here yet. So it's like the very first time I'm driving down and even um, the drive to Minokin is relatively long. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm on the right road. But then there was that moment of like, what if I'm on the wrong road and I'm about to go to someone's house who doesn't want me here? And that becomes a whole nother yeah. interaction. So it was kind of that, the recognition of the color of my skin being in Virginia on a plantation, there was that moment. But then it was getting to the house and seeing what was there and seeing the work that's already been done by other professionals and understanding the, the preservation professional side of this and the fact that this isn't something that's really been done in the States. The fact that we're actually going to enclose the missing volume in glass and all of the opportunities that's going to open up for different ways to deal with historic structures was really interesting. So it was an interesting double consciousness of experiencing the place racially for what it meant and what it symbolizes to being a black person in America on this plantation, 
and then also looking at it from a preservation professional side and understanding all of the additional work that was going to come from it. It was very interesting. Beyonce has this interesting quote that I love where she says, the past and the future merge to meet us here. And I very much felt cool. that where the, cool. there is something happening in this moment here. So yeah. were you energized by that? Were you exhausted by that? Were you both? A little bit of both, but it was, I was intrigued by it because it was an interesting feeling of like, it's almost kind of like goosebumps all of a sudden. Yeah. It's like, oh, something's, yeah. something is yeah. happening here. And then an acknowledgement of the past. And I sometimes, like as, as I'm thinking of historic buildings and looking at them, I have a tendency to look at a building and kind of slide a slider in my mind. So this is what it is currently. Think about what it was 100 years ago, slide it forward. What could it be 100 years from now? So it's kind of interesting to try and see multiple time spaces at the same time. But yeah, it was fascinating. So I knew that I wanted to be an architect from a young age. I don't really know where I came from. I don't come from a family of architects, but I just knew it was, I've always had a thing for dilapidated buildings. <laughs> Some people like cars, dilapidated buildings, that's their thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I went to UVA for undergrad and then went to Penn. So I went to predominantly white institutions for my education. And so at UVA, I was one of three black students in my class. At Penn, one of three or four. But architecture is still a very predominantly white male profession. Of the 115,000 or so licensed architects, 2% are African-American. Of that 2%, less than 500 are black female architects. When I got licensed in 2013, I think my number was around 320 or so. And I still sometimes get the comment of, oh, isn't architecture a weird profession for a woman? And I'm like, no, it's not. But it just, it's, there's not that many. So it's coming into a profession and recognizing that there needed to be more people that look like me in this profession. I didn't get into this because, oh, there need to be more black architects. I got into it because I just like architecture and historic buildings. But being in the profession and having a voice and being able to show people, yes, there are black women can be architects. And yes, there are some of us and we're around. It's been an interesting progress. And the preservation field is about the same from a diversity standpoint. I know a handful of black preservation architects, literally a handful. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you said that, isn't, uh, that people say to you sometimes or have said mm -hmm. to you, is doesn't it feel like that's not the typical career for a woman? I mean, right. you having to push harder than you to some extent. So it's more so a, a credibility. So I don't get a pass when I go when I'm networking for the, for instance, I've networked with another colleague where automatically someone's like, oh, you're an architect. Great. Let's they start talking business. I tell them I am an architect. Like, where'd you go to school? Well, how long have you been practicing? Are you licensed? Like it's more of the uh -huh. credential checking and the verification of, uh, oh, well, you can't call yourself an architect if you're not licensed. Oh, I know that very well. I am a licensed architect. So, and even when I uh, when I used to run a small practice, it was a lot of oh, me, hello. Like so, it's the more of the second guessing, more of the mansplaining, and the oh, are you sure you're an architect, little lady? I've even had clients who uh, they're older and uh, and so they would introduce me like oh, and this young lady is going to take us through the project. Architect is the word you're looking for. I am the architect. <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating, but yeah. I imagine it is. Yeah. I imagine it is. Mm -hmm. You know, the value of Minokin to me isn't just that it has this ruin and a really cool right. architectural design, mm -hmm. but the value of Minokin is that its mission is to tell the story of everybody who's touched it. Mm -hmm. Francis Lightfoot Lee, founder of the Declaration of Independence, uh, but also the enslaved, also indentured, folks who are indentured, mm -hmm. Indians who've worked here. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because Minokin isn't about this signer, right. although that's a big part of it. The Minokin's about us. Mm -hmm. And Minokin's a place for us to discover ourselves and right. our own link to 
the, the past and to help that inform us as we look into the future. And so the, I think a, a critical piece of Monokin's mission is to really facilitate people making a connection with themselves and with their own history as it kind of involves what's been happening here. Yeah, and I think Monokin's also done a great job from a preservation professional standpoint. There have been a number of different firms that have worked on it. Uh, and actually the firm that I'm at now, Quinn Evans, worked on Minokin back in the 90s. And they were one of the firms that got the, the shed over the ruin. And so even just the different pieces of preservation planning and project planning. All right, we got to cover the ruin to keep the water out. How do we do that? Okay, we got to document the stones, move those over. How do we do that? So just the puzzle piece of putting the building back together and the different brain power that's gone into that has been fascinating. And so it's, I love the personal connection and then also professional connection and how do we keep teaching and training and reminding next professionals, hey, this is what we did already. <laughs> yeah. Your research when you first came here to do a, a comprehensive report mm -hmm. of all the different uh, studies that have been done is right. a reflection of that. I mean, there's actually a history of marking the history. Right. And one of the things that's interesting about Minokin is we think about it as, as stopping as the time that Francis Lightfoot Lee mm -hmm. left it. And right. there is this tremendous history since then. And lots of people have cared about this place yes. and have, have given parts of their lives and, and given money mm -hmm. to it at different stages right. to help move it along. Right. Like along the lines of what you're talking about, creating an environment, creating this, this place where a conversation can happen mm -hmm. that allows us to discover ourselves. And, right. and so there's a history within the history, so mm -hmm. to speak, of making that all happen, which yeah. itself is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. So when I first got to the project working on the historic structures report, documenting, okay, what parts of the building are where in the state. So it's like, all right, the dining room is in Richmond and parts of the exterior stone are at the visitor center. And all right, the, this corner of the house is still on the site. <laughs> like where are the different pieces that need to go back into the building? <laughs> yeah, so it's good. So the glass house to me will be a, a fulcrum, mm -hmm. but Monokin is a lot more than the glass house. Right. You know that as wonderful a building as that is, is it's not gonna be a place where you can do extensive lectures mm -hmm. or have meetings or educational programming. The Glass House is this, this phenomenal fulcrum. It's a starting point, mm -hmm. but what needs to happen in my view after the Glass House is, is there and fully completed mm -hmm. is I would love to see archeology span get underway to unearth what remains of the, the dwellings of the enslaved people. Right now we have the remembrance structure. I would love to see Monokin actually resurrect what we can of mm -hmm. the original dwellings of people who are enslaved. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got these 500 acres, we've got this, a focus on the, the environment needs to be part of this too. And I would love for us to have a place, a meeting place where folks can come in and engage around the environment, engage around Virginia's history, America's history, engage around important social issues, mm -hmm. find this place as a kind of a way to step out of the hubbub of major cities and take a step back and reflect and have their minds broadened and have, in some respects, have their spirits broadened mm -hmm. by spending time here. I have a discreet vision about work for un unearthing ruins of the folks who were enslaved here, preserving what we can of that and telling that story as deeply as we can. I want to see the environment really made accessible. And I would love to see Monokin serve as a real meeting place for folks to come in yeah. for study. Yeah. I'm excited for the glass house, but you're right. It's not going to be a place where you can have sustained lectures. It's going to be much more of a come look at the 
fabric from over 200 years ago. So the woodwork and once that goes back in, that's going to be really cool. Yeah. Um, the, the woodwork and then even just the masonry preservation that went into it. And there's a lot of technical work that was done on the building. So I'm excited for the building itself to be a teaching tool. But then in terms of the whole rest of the site, there is so much other stuff here. In addition to the fields and the, I know there's stuff that happens on the water and the birders and the, I love the fact that it is such a true ecosystem that's happening here. And there's so many different facets for people to come and connect with. And so it's not just the architecture. It's not just the, the field. You have different touch points to get into it. I think it's going to be a really great story and really interactive for lots of different people. I hope so. Yeah. So if I were to be magically transported to the point where I could have a conversation mm -hmm. uh, with an ancestor of mine who was here, mm -hmm. say 200 plus years ago, um, of course, I'd be interested in what their take is on breaking from England and rebelling. And I'd be interested in some of the cultural things they were dealing with. But I'd be really curious about who they were as, as people, what made them happy, what was a sort, source of joy for them, what their struggles were, mm -hmm. what pains and what the source of those pains were. If it were an ancestor of mine, I'd want to make that kind of an intimate connection with them. Yeah. And it's funny because that's the joy was the question that I had as well. So like, what brings you joy? What keeps you going? Knowing just how hard that life was, what was still the joy that you found in the day to day and being in this place? And then, because that would be fascinating for me because it's the knowing that it's the, the conversation, we don't have the power to, the rules of time travel, you can't change things, you can't, you can't, altering one little thing changes the future, all that. So it's just the knowing about them personally and what brought them joy. I love the fact that what got you here was even the conversation of ownership or familial ownership. I thought that was fascinating and the fact that you're so candid about it. I love that it's the acknowledgement because I think not acknowledging it, it doesn't get us anywhere. And so I think the fact that you're like, oh, well, all right, that's something, Let's, okay. <laughs> like, like, I think that excites me that you're open to having that conversation. I'm intrigued by all of the work that you're doing, even from like the disability standpoint and removing the barriers and really helping people understand that people are people. I would hope that we would keep talking and keep in touch. Yeah, that's that would be of, great. Yeah, that's it. My hope for you, based on your clear passion around preservation architecture, this long, this kind of embedded thread, which got there, however got there. Right. You are a pathbreaker, clearly. And my hope for you would be that you would be comfortable in that role only so long as it gave you energy as opposed to took energy away from you. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you went through this history, these different segments of the preservation efforts at Monokan. Yeah. To kind of unify that stuff. Did you discover any themes that you hadn't anticipated or was it just this mishmash of things that didn't really line up? So I, th I think the theme of this place being cared for. So after, after Francis Lightfoot-Lee and Rebecca died, the property transferred ownership a couple of times. But the fact that even the Umahandro family had the foresight to take the woodwork out because the building was starting to fall apart and they had the foresight to store it off site because they wanted to protect it and tell the story and then to even gift the property to the foundation. So I think the fact that there are people who have loved this site, this place, this building for hundreds of years was a theme that came through in a lot of the research as we were putting it together. And then even the different work that different professionals were doing and, okay, well, how do we figure out the stones or figure out the woodwork, figure out what went where? Uh, so there's been a lot of care that's happened here. Yeah. So how do I say this? Physical care. I don't know about the 
stolen land and stolen people. There's that whole piece of it still. So not to gloss over that completely. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was just the once it was here, the legacy continued. And the fact that it's still continuing even after all this time, even after the foundation still going forward. Most nonprofits don't last as long as the foundation has lasted and raising those sums of money needed to do the work and the vision to keep it going has been phenomenal. A big thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This week's episode was produced by Fernando Queiroz. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which by the way is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them And setting them free that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this I'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, Stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging 
and chart your own path to architectural success.